Okay, so we're talking about lust today. Anybody want to trade places? Uh, I'd be glad to sit out there. Um, it's an awkward topic, right? In a, in a room full, some, some people you don't know. Uh, but this many people talking about that, that word. I mean, some of you are here because you just want to see if it's a train wreck, right? You just, you just want to see if this could get really messed up. Um, even the word is awkward. Lust, right? It's just hostile and a little creepy and kind of weird. Love is not that way, right? Love is easy to say, and we say it often about everything. We love a lot of things. Love is beautiful and sincere and, and innocent. and like, Love is great. Lust is harder to say. I'm going to say lust a lot this morning. I don't get to say lust almost Sunday, so I'm going to use all of my lust words on this day. Um, there's, a, there's a big difference, I think we would all agree, between the two. But trying to define where that difference is is sometimes challenging. Or being able to detect the difference inside of me is sometimes different. Right inside of you, when does one become the other, or, or when do I think it's one but it actually is the other? Let, let me give you a definition. We're trying to define these seven deadly sins as we go through this series. Here's here's a definition that I put together. Lust is a desire for pleasure that is focused on self gratification, without regard for the other person or the purposes of God. Lust is about me being fulfilled, pleased, without serving another person, caring, respecting another person, and without respecting the plan and purposes of God for this particular area of our life. John was one of the disciples of Jesus and wrote several books in the, in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, John wrote all of those. John most likely lived longer than any of the other disciples. John did not die a martyr. He was one of the few disciples that did not die uh, for his faith. Well, faith wasn't killed for his faith. So John lived a, a really long time. Uh, there's a story, a sort of a traditional story about John, that when he was too old to walk into church and to teach... They would carry John in, and as he would come through the church, he would reach out and he would touch people, and he would say, love one another, love one another, love one another. A lot of John's writings emphasize our need to love God and our need to love one another. But along with that message of loving one another, John realized that there would be a competing desire. Like, like the good desire of loving God and loving others, there would be competition from a less noble emotion. There would be competition from an emotion that wanted all the benefits of love without any of the commitment, without any of the service, or without any of the giving. We just want to take, 
And so John warns people not only to love, but to be on guard for this substitute desire that will be at work in all of our hearts. He writes about it in 1 John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, and then he defines some categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Point of clarification. When John says, do not love the world, he's not saying we shouldn't love the people of the world. In this case, world doesn't mean individual people. He's not contradicting all the times the Bible tells us to love one another or tells us to love others. He's not contradicting what he wrote in the Gospel of John in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. In that case, he was saying God loves all the people of the world. John is saying don't love the way the world goes about its business in contradiction to the way God intends for you to live. Don't love the system of the world. Don't love the way the world looks at things. Not the people, but the system, the the perception, the motivations that you might find in the world. Don't follow after that. Don't be sucked in to the way the world views everything, specifically love. He even says if anyone loves that system, then you don't love God. You can't love both. Your heart needs to be fully for God. And and, and he knew there would be contrasting, competing desires in our heart. In this system, in this series, we've, we've made the point that in our life there would be desires that we would feel and they would feel right and they would feel good and they would feel normal and natural and we would be compelled to go after them, and the Bible says, no, you're going to feel some things sometimes that you should not indulge. You're going to feel like you want to do something, or you want something, or you want someone, and you're going to have to restrict to that desire. You're going to put parameters around that desire. You, You and I cannot indulge every desire that we feel. It's a It's a case of prioritizing. It's a case of emphasizing, or we might say worshiping. I mean, worship is just about whatever's first, like whatever the priority in my life is. That's what I'm worshiping. And John and others in the Bible say, be careful that you don't put things ahead of God. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, Paul talks about a lot of ways the world system gets messed up. A lot of ways the world approaches things that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't approach things. And at one point in Romans 1, Paul writes, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul said, here's part of the problem. We want to be first. We want our desires to be first. Before we worry about God, I want my desires desires to be fulfilled. 
That's what I worship. Paul used the line, they worship created things. Well, we're created things. We worship ourselves, our own desires. We worship other people. We disregard what God has to say about our relationships. Paul says this comes down to a worship issue, to a priority, to to a what's first. In the Bible, when God wanted to demonstrate like ultimate disobedience, like running away from God, he often used sexual promiscuity as the metaphor, as the analogy, especially in the Old Testament. The book of Hosea, if you've ever read it, it's a story, it's a real story uh, about the nation of Israel was running away from God and there's a prophet by the name of Hosea and God says, I want you to marry a promiscuous woman And he does, and he loves her, and he commits to her, and then she leaves him and sleeps around and becomes a prostitute. And later on in the story, Hosea comes back and buys her back to himself, like pays for her again and brings her back in his home as an example of God's grace and love and forgiveness and redemption in our lives. But when God wanted to demonstrate, look, this is what it means to run far from me, sexual promiscuity was the metaphor. Uh, Ezekiel 23 is an extended allegory about Israel running away from God. Just a side note, don't read Ezekiel 23 to your kids at bedtime or ever. Like, Don't ever read Ezekiel 23 to your kids. It is a very graphic allegory filled with sexual promiscuity. When God was trying to get the nation's attention to say, this is what you're doing. This is how you're running from me. This is how you're going away from me. He put it in the form of a story about disregarding God's ideas when it comes to sexuality. Whenever we try to bypass God's design, whenever we try to bypass God's plan... What we're trying to do is satisfy some part of our heart. Satisfy some longing within us. Let me make a couple of comments about how lust intersects with that. Lust and the behaviors that follow in its wake are an attempt to satisfy a void in our life. We're trying to fill up something. We're trying to satisfy. So we have have a longing, we have a need, we have a desire... And we're reaching to try to fill that desire. We're putting relationships. We're putting images. We're putting action. We're we're trying to put all of that into this space of need. And maybe we might say on the positive end, it's, it's needs like connection, relationships, security, safety, acceptance, love. On more of a negative end, maybe it's, Maybe it's a a void that we're trying to fill called power. There's some gap in us, and we think this will fill it. Now, the corollary to that is that lust and the behaviors that follow in its wake are evidence that I don't trust God's plan for filling those places in my life. They're there. I feel them. I want to fill them. Connection, security, love, acceptance, being seen, being known. They're there. I just don't trust that God has a good plan for filling those areas, so I'm going to go fill them. 
I, I don't trust that what God taught about those areas getting filled in my life is true. And so I'm going to find some other way to fill it. I'm going to try to bypass God's intent for my life to fill this, this void. And it's not just the void of, I like that person. I'm attracted to that person. It's deeper than that. It's, I want to connect with other human beings. I mean, God not only created us with these desires, like I'm convinced. He created the paths and the means to fill those. To fill those longings and hopes and desires in our heart. He created all of that. And we live in an imperfect world, and they're never fully filled, perhaps, in this world. And, and really, only in Christ do we experience the, the complete uh, acceptance and love and affirmation that our heart wants. But God created us, created us with these desires and also with the way to fill it. And sometimes we just don't trust His plan. We don't think he's, he's going to take care of that in us. And so we try to take care of that ourselves. But God, is, God has always had a plan. I mean, Jesus described the plan. These are the words of Jesus. Get mad with Jesus and not me. Matthew chapter 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God said, look, when it comes to the sexual area of our life, God's, God's already got a plan, a plan of two people that have committed themselves to one another. That, that you can know this person has your interest at heart because they're committed to you for the rest of their life. They're here for you. And there's not like some plan B. There's, like, there's not another plan. This is, this is the plan for sexual fulfillment in our lives. Now, how have we gotten so far away from that plan as a culture? Maybe not you personally, but as a society, as a culture. How have we gotten so far away from that plan? And I think there are a couple of reasons. One is because... More and more as a society, we've decided there just aren't any rules in this area of our life. Like there's no parameters, there's no boundaries, anything and everything's permissible. There are no boundaries whatsoever. Everybody gets to decide where their own boundaries are. So here's God, here's Jesus and Matthew, and Jesus says, okay, this is how this is going to work. This is how I created you, and this is the plan I created for meeting those needs in your life. And in here, there is great safety and protection. And for generations and generations, for thousands of years. I mean, go back to the first century, and you read Paul, they're, they're having the same troubles that we're having for thousands and thousands of years, people have been saying, I don't like the boundary here. I want the boundary over here. And, and, and then we sort of live in that area as a culture for a while. And then we decide, but I don't really like it there either. I, can we just push it out a little more? And can we push this boundary way over here? And can we keep pressing back on what God has said and what God's plan is? And it hasn't changed. Because this feels confining. I don't believe, this is what we say, I don't believe 
My longings can be filled in these boundaries. And so I just want to keep pushing them back a little bit farther and a little bit farther. And this is marketed as freedom, right? That's what, that's what we're told. This is freedom. And in order for gender equality, then women need to be free to experience all of this. And these people need to be free. And that person needs to be free. This will liberate you. This will set you free. This is marketed as freedom. But it's not necessarily freedom. There's a price anytime you start pushing the boundaries back. I've seen a video come up in my Facebook feed a number of times. Nobody's been able to confirm whether this is real or, or whether this is a spoof. But there's this video that... Uh, about a coach and his little soccer team. You've seen this, right? His little soccer team, and they, they've developed a league now where they play soccer without a soccer ball. And so you just imagine where you want the soccer ball to go. And that's where it goes for you. Like kick it anywhere, run up and down the field, and then we all have Capri Suns at the end of the day, and we all won, Right? I don't know how the goalie's going to feel at the end of this day, though, right? Because nobody kicks it and goes, oh, you blocked it. Now, everybody wants to score the goal, right? So the, the goalie needs therapy after this game. But everybody else is like, whatever you want, like make up your own rules. Kick it wherever you, it's you, just wherever you see the ball going. It's the beginning of Major League Baseball season. That used to be a good thing in Atlanta. Right? You remember, some of you are old enough to remember like, there was a time it was really exciting when baseball season started because we were going to win. We had, we had Sid Slide, right? Worst to first, early 90s. Chipper Jones and Smoltz and Glavin and Maddox. It was crazy. National League Championship uh, Series champions. Remember, we used to put up banners. Remember way long time ago, Atlanta Braves, we used to actually put up banners when we won things. We had a World Series thrown in there. It was great. It was great to be an Atlanta Brave. Some of you are too young to remember those days. I apologize. It was great back then. This is a time of year, though, <clears throat> that Major League Baseball floats some rule changes. I don't know if you heard this one, but the one they floated most recently was, um, if it's the last inning and your team is behind, the, the manager can decide to bat whoever he wants. So in the eighth inning, if your best hitter hit, but you're still behind in the ninth inning, you can put him up and, and, and let him in. Baseball is always trying to figure out how do we speed up the game? How do we get more interest in the game? How do we get TV numbers up and ticket sales up and all of those? They're competing with a whole bunch of things. And so they're always thinking, how do we speed up the game and make it most interesting? And they floated this a couple of weeks ago. And all oh, the baseball purists, like they, they were livid. Oh, you're going to ruin the game. That's not how you play the game. The, the lineup is part of the strategy of the game. You can't take the lineup out because then you mess up the whole strategy. What if <clears throat> spring training is still going on? So we got time for this. We could push for this. What if before the season started this year, Major League Baseball came out and said, you know what, this is what we've decided. We're going to get rid of all baseball rules. Not just the last anything. Like, we're getting rid of all of them. I mean, the rule book, let's be honest, the rule book was written a long time ago. It's kind of archaic. 
Like, we don't even understand some of the language that's in it. Like, they, did, they had no idea what baseball was going to be like in the year 2018. We're no longer going to refer to that really old book. We're going to say no rules. Do whatever you want. If you want five strikes, you get five strikes. If you want ten strikes, you get ten strikes. If you want to hit a home run every time you're up, great. You get a home run. And you get a home run. And you get a run. Everybody gets a home run. You can run the bases backwards if you want. If you decide, I think the baseball should go through a basket in order to get a point. Fine. That's, you. Fine. That's your rule. That's what you want to do. And initially... It'd be kind of interesting, right? Like, what are they going to come up with? How creative they're going to be at, at this baseball game. But it wouldn't take long for it to become chaos. I mean, you might buy a ticket one time just to see what's going to happen. But you're not buying a ticket regularly to go see people make up their own rules. Baseball without rules eventually becomes Chaos. And if they did this, here's what they would find. That removing the rules would ruin the very thing they're trying to improve. Removing the rules would ruin the very thing that they're saying, we're trying to make this better. But you didn't make it better. You made it chaotic. You made it without meaning. Now, winning doesn't mean, mean, and losing doesn't mean anything because you've removed all of the boundaries and all of the parameters that define this is what baseball is. Now, that's what we've done with sexuality. We've removed all of the boundaries and all of the parameters that define this is what it means to be in a loving, committed relationship. This is what it's like. And we've said for thousands of years, I don't like that. I don't like that. Push that back. I'm going to reject that. And we have chaos sexually in the culture that we're in. C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, he's he's writing about hell, which is another topic. We'll we'll talk about that someday. He's writing, uh, giving an idea of kind of what hell would be like. And, And this is... This is what Lewis writes. The lost, in other words, those who end up there. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore enslaved just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. Lost. Enjoy the horrible thing. They've demanded freedom. Freedom, leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do. Stay out of my life. And Lewis says that comes with consequences. That comes with chaos. That comes with a prison of its own making. And Lewis is, is, is surmising that hell is going to be just this chaotic prison of freedom that you've been demanding your whole life. Whereas heaven is those who have submitted to the plan and purposes of God are finding that there's greater and greater freedom in that submission. There's greater and greater freedom in that obedience and greater and greater meaning and love and joy. Another, another problem that we have is we treat sexuality as a thing. Not only do we remove the boundaries, we treat sexuality as a thing as an object, just like any other object. 
It's just something you do. It's something, just something that happens. It's something everybody does. It's just a part of life, relationship. It's just, it's just a thing. It's, it's just friends with benefits. Right? It's just a hookup. It's just swiping right. right. It's just a thing. It's just an app. It's just a meetup. And we detach it from emotional connection, relational connection, spiritual connection. In other words, we take the heart out of the gift that God gave us. And so we don't experience the beauty of the gift because we detach it from all of its emotional content and spiritual content. And we say, no, it's just a thing. It's not that big a deal. It's like, it's like the rake that my neighbor forgot to return to me. It's just a thing. It's just an object. It's just what people do. And as a result, there's chaos in this area of our, our culture. Chaos to the point that we, we can't even define gender in our culture. I mean, you want to talk about chaos? We can't even have a gender conversation in our, in our, in our culture. Like we can't have a, a reasoned objective. Here's some thoughts on Here's some thoughts before people are called bigots or anti-science or anti-whatever or pro-whatever or all this. We, we can't even have a conversation now in our culture about what gender is and where the lines of gender are. We Things are so chaotic, we can't even define consent in our culture. Used to be, when we were really trying to do this, right? When we were really trying to push back the boundaries, we're giving women freedom to be as promiscuous as men. So, while we're pushing all of this back, it used to be our thought was, well, consent will control everything. Like, two adults, they both consent. We can't even agree on what that is. It used to be that consent was no means no, right? You remember when we were taught that? No means no. Like that was a big mantra. And then we realized no means no didn't work. And so then it became only a yes means yes. Like the other person has to say yes, agree to it. almost became contractual. Like you're going to sign that you said yes. It never got to that point, but it needed to. Because nobody knew what consent was. And now we're at a day and time where consent can change two weeks after the fact. It's, thought it was consent at the time. Sounded like consent. Two weeks later, one of the people don't think it was consent. Like, we cannot agree on what consent is. And, and I'm not offering excuses for assault or rape. Or, or I'm not offering any excuses. I'm saying we've pushed and we've pushed and we've pushed and we can't even define basic terms now. I'm grateful that in our culture there is a, a, di- a conversation that's coming up that's addressing some of this. It's called a Me Too movement, right? It's not a perfect movement. I get it. It's not perfect. But I, I'm grateful that women and, and men 
are finding a period in our culture where they can say, this happened to me and it was systemically covered up for years and I did not have a voice and I could not say anything and I lost my job. Thank goodness. We're in a time where that conversation is being had. This has to stop because we have systematically covered this up in Hollywood, in the media, in politics. Like your tax money and my tax money paid to cover some of it up. It's what we're learning. And in the church. And thank goodness there are voices now saying this has to stop. But here's my question. What now? Like, how's the future going to be any different from the past? When we can't define consent, when we can't say, look, here are the parameters. We're too busy kicking an invisible soccer ball on this issue. I I can help you with consent if you want it. Consent is when you say, I do, in your wedding vows. I mean, if you want to know what consent is, that would be consent. Anything short of that should not be considered consent. Like When you stand in front of a minister, a judge, whomever you choose, and you say, I commit the rest of my life to this person, that's consent. And I know that's old-fashioned, and that's traditional and puritanical, and it's 2018, and I should update my belief system, but I'm looking at what the world is producing in this area, and, and, and I'll take my view. I'll hang on to my view. But consent is when you commit to another person forever and ever, because now what we have is not only an inability to find terms, we have rampant pornography. Available on our smartphones, on, 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 our, uh, on our laptops, on our iPads. And a huge percentage of men specifically are trapped, addicted, pornography. Because it's a, it's a thing. It's something I want. It's some, it, it's, there's no attachment. And not men out there, like men in the church... Men where you work, sex trafficking, child pornography. Like these are awful subjects. These are horrible subjects. But they are subjects because we just keep doing this. You can't tell me. You can't tell me. You can't tell me. I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear. And we and the next generation are paying the price. Jesus was really clear that it's not just about what I do or what I, what I watch or what actions I take. Jesus was really clear at one point to say, no, there's stuff going on in your mind that's sinful. There's stuff going on in your heart. There are things you're thinking. There are people you're obsessing about. John said the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Like you're taking stuff in that you should not be taking in. You're holding things in your mind that you should not be holding in your mind. And I don't think it's debatable that this area 
is utterly chaotic in our world. If there's a prescriptive virtue, <clears throat> there are probably a lot I should mention. I'm going to mention one, and you may not even think it's related. I'm going to mention one, and that's courage. For you and I to love God and not love the world in the way that John spoke about. For you and I to say, we're going to set boundaries around the sexual area of our lives is going to take courage in the time that we live in. For middle, high school students to say, no, I'm I'm, going to believe what God said. I'm going to believe what God teaches. It's going to take courage. For college students to say, look, I'm going to live my life by what God desires and God's plan and purpose for this area of my life. I'm going to build boundaries around it. It's going to take real courage because you'll be one of the few. For single people who are wondering, are these longings ever going to get fulfilled? God, what, what, why am I having to wait so long? It's going to take courage. It's, we're in the tender generation, Right? We're in the dating app, and I'm not against dating apps. I, I just think a lot of us know what a lot of the dating apps are. They're hookup apps. Right? In that generation, 23-year-old single people, 25-year-old single people, 35-year-old single people, 55-year-old single people, it's going to take courage to say, I'm going to live my life for God. For a married couple that wants to stay true to their I do and their vows, wants to stay committed, wants to keep their eyes and their heart and their mind from places it should not be, it is going to take courage to be different. The, 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 the whole concept of open marriage is like making another run at our culture, even in the church. I'm married, but I have flings over here. It's going to keep coming, wave after wave. Wave after wave. And you and I have to decide, do we have the courage? One of Jesus' most well-known conversations is in John chapter 4. If you've heard the conversation before, you've heard it called uh, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. He meets a woman. His disciples have gone into town. It's just him. It's the middle of the day. The only reason she's coming to the well in the middle of the day is because she's an outcast, because she's the person everybody whispers about. Right? She has the reputation. She has the background. She's totally wrecked. The relational, sexual side of her life is totally wrecked. It. And Jesus meets her and enters into conversation. She's shocked that a man would talk to her because everybody knows what she is. And Jesus said, yeah, you you kind of blown it. You didn't say it quite like that, but so yeah, you've had a you've had a bunch of husbands. You're living with somebody right now. They're not even your husband. And there was this gentle wooing. There was this gentle calling of her back to himself, back to his way, back to his plan and purposes. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's a matter. Of how much we've wrecked and ruined, Jesus is still there saying, come back. 
Come back to me. Come back. Let's, let's start again. It doesn't mean all the consequences go away. They, they don't all go away. I, I often see people, especially in this area of their life, kind of reverse engineer God back into their mistakes. Well, God had a plan. Well, God was in it from the beginning. Well, God, like God didn't really intend for you to go sin. Right? That wasn't God's intent. God redeem it. But we kind of reverse engineer God back into my sin, and God doesn't exactly work that way. But God does step in wherever you are, whatever has fallen apart, whatever decisions you've made. And like Jesus sitting across of this woman says, I love you. I, I, I forgive you. I, I got a future for you. I'm here for you. Let's do this together. And some of us need courage. And some of us, you just need to accept that God forgives. And God's grace is real. And He doesn't pull it back. That there is opportunity to start new with Him. Let's pray. God, this is a complicated issue. It's a hard one. It's a heavy one. But God, we, we, want, we want all the beauty and goodness that you want to give us in this area of our life. We want joy. We have, we have longings that we want you to fill. And sometimes we get impatient and we try to fill them on our own. God, I, I pray I pray for the middle school student, the high school student. You give them courage. The college student, the single person, the married people. Not that we would be jerks to people. Not that, not that we would get in people's face. But God, that you would just give us courage to live out your plans. In a way that honors you. Respects and loves deeply other people who need to know you. I think we're fooling ourselves, God, if we, if we look at our culture and we don't say yeah, that's real chaos. There's real chaos there. And so help us in a loving, gracious way to be people who model what it means to walk in your plans and walk, walk in your will. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.